Hi, I'm Gordon Lamp here with The Real Finds Podcast, the podcast series where we interview key entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists, shaping the real estate industry and as a result, our world. In today's podcast, we'll be speaking with Michael Arnold. Michael is vice chairman of Elite Global Corporate Services and founder of their tenant consulting group. On the podcast, we take a deep dive into tenant representation and how tenant reps serve the workspace needs of occupiers. I learned a lot, and I hope to apply many of his techniques to my own practice. It's well worth a listen. Michael, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So uh, can you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? Certainly. So I'm Michael Arnold. I run our tenant consulting group uh, at NAI Capital Commercial, as well as our vice chairman for elite corporate services with NAI Global. I've been doing it now with the NAI companies for approximately six years. Prior to that, I ran the LA office for Newmark for 12 years. And then prior to that, I uh, started my career at CBRE, where I was there for nine years and was there national office rookie of the year my first year in the business <laughs> well that's that's awesome to be a uh a stellar rookie uh i think we're gonna pop back on that a little bit later but uh, i wanted to ask you why commercial real estate because a lot of people have stories with what got them into the industry what got you into the commercial real estate industry it's a funny story um i actually was playing professional basketball in Europe, in israel <laughs> and when my career ended I came back and I had no idea what I wanted to do. And my mother, of all people, had a friend uh, who happened to be pretty high up at CBRE at the time and ran their Western United States. In fact, Brett White used to report to him, who now runs, obviously, Cushman and Wakefield. And he said, hey, there's a bunch of ex-athletes in our industry. And I was like, oh, that, that sounds great. I have no idea what this industry is. And so I interviewed, had an opportunity to start in commercial real estate um, in the the research department. And then I did that for about 18 months. And then I had an opportunity where a broker could bring you on at their sole discretion as a runner. Did that for 18 months. So the reason I got into commercial real estate was more about happenstance more than anything else. I came back and I was like, what am I going to do now for the rest of my life? And this opportunity presented itself. Do you think there's a good crossover and things you've learned uh, when you were a professional athlete that uh, you brought over into the real estate world? A hundred percent. I mean, there's so many parallels with athletics. There's winning, losing, preparing, <laughs> uh, teamwork, uh, communication, verbal, nonverbal. I mean, athletics are a great metaphor for life, right? Because you have to learn what it's like to fail to succeed. I mean, you know, there's that great Michael Jordan quote, you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, or maybe that was correct. So um, one of the greats, <laughs> one of the greats, right? I noticed a Jordan jersey behind. I have one up at my my house as well like that. So um, I think you have to be built a little different. I mean, there's very, there's a few different nuances of what we do, right? There's people have to go solicit business. You have to process business. You have to go win business, right? So what I've essentially done is I've verticalized it, maybe making up my own words now, where, um, you know, there's a component of a percentage of the transaction for each vertical, if you will. So for a certain percentage for getting the meeting, for winning the business, for processing it. And what I found is very similar to most athletics. Teams really work and service business better than individuals. And so what I've tried to 
instill in my team and individuals is a different mentality of how to approach commercial real estate. And it's very much similar to athletics. You have to have a captain. You have to have a leader on the court. Um, you have to have somebody who's willing to do the dirty work and get rebounds, right? Basketball analogies. You got to be able to make the extra pass. You have to think that one plus one equals three for the betterment of the team. And if you look in, I'll use the playoffs analogy now, the reason Denver and Miami are both winning, they're sharing the ball more, they're making bigger shots. They look like they're having more fun playing with each other than their competitors. And I'm a diehard Laker fan, so that's really hard for me to say. Uh, I, there's a great book I read uh, not too long ago called The Captain Class about how that there are certain individuals on teams that really create that uh, unique uh, a makeup that that really create winning teams, and uh, I I have to imagine that uh, it's true for real estate as well. So, um, in terms of going and understanding real estate a little bit better, I'm curious. Um, uh, you're really uh, a major player in the tenant representation world, from what I've seen, and I'm curious what makes tenant representation unique, and and kind of how how does tenant representation function. Um, uh, in um, in your world, it's a great question, um, and thank you. I uh, I've worked very hard to be a, a leader in that field, especially in my community and both nationally. And being a leader, where I think as a true leader, you have to lead by example. I think that you have to provide and help people with opportunities, information without a expectation in return. I think by helping elevate everybody, it makes like a team. You elevate everybody, everything's going to have more success, right? So I think at the end of the day, um, in a roundabout way, I think your initial question was how, how do, what was the question again? I'm sorry. Yeah. So what, why tenant representation and what makes right. tenant representation so, unique? Yeah. Right. So from a tenant rep perspective, you know, my sole and, and only fiduciary responsibilities to my client. I don't represent landlords. Um, I was just in a very heated discussion <laughs> on Twitter yesterday with somebody saying, oh, it's BS. You can be in the same firm and represent um, a company where let's say you and I were in the same firm, but you represent the landlord, I represent the tenant. You know, there's that very slippery slope where we're going to be talking and figuring out at the same company how to get to the deal done. And then this other broker happened to be at a national firm as well. So, well, you know, you still talk to brokers. I go, yeah, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. My company's not putting pressure on me like, oh, we want to represent both parties because what's the truth of the matter? You're making a bigger fee, right? Um, and from my standpoint, I don't care. I'm going to get paid the same fee wherever I take my client. And I can tell you 101 out of 100 times that that's, to, that that's the case, where I'll create leverage with multiple landlords on behalf of my clients and figure out a way to get them the best possible transaction that aligns with their cultural, economical, and operational components. And at the end of the day, I negotiate with my, on behalf of my clients, like it's my own transaction. If it was my own deal with that passion and fervor. So can you touch a little bit more on that, on how you add value? Because I think for a lot of people that uh, are outside the industry, particularly, we do have some occupiers that do listen to this podcast. And so how did they, 
uh, get value from tenant representation because sometimes, you know, they'll get this call and say, we're going to add value, right? And they don't really know what that value means and, and where the rubber meets the road. And so I'm curious, uh, what value do you typically provide for an occupier I mean, who might there, be looking out in the market? There's a number of ways to provide value. Um, the first question, or for the most part, brokers say I create value. And I always ask them the same question. Like there's another <laughs> competitor on Twitter this week and asked me the same question. He goes, so how do you work with a 20,000 foot um, occupier who doesn't want to give you an exclusive? And my answer was pretty simple. Um, does your client work for free? And the simple answer is no, they don't. And neither should you. Your time is valuable. And that's all we have. That's the one commodity, right? So what I always like to share is let's lay out a process. There's a timeline for decision making, for identifying opportunities, for lease negotiation, bringing on a project manager, an architect. You know, prior to even doing that, I really roll up my sleeves and we do a whole workplace study where we try and understand the efficiencies or inefficiencies of a workplace, how different units within that workplace work together. There's financial components, you know, FASB 13 uh, regulations, whether, you know, you're doing, um, you're underwriting your lease on a gap or cash basis, understanding the way your business operates. If you're a law firm, you're, you're not a company, you're a firm. So understanding most of the time how that S-Corp you know, finishes out their, their year and how the capital is being deployed within the partners. And then typically you have senior partners who want the cash and the junior partners who want to put it back into their firm. So I think the real true value is understanding the company or firm in which you're representing the way their business operates and then asking the appropriate questions of what are those pressure points? Where are those pain points? And a lot of times people don't recognize what those are. And there are other times like, we had a meeting last week with a company where a national firm like ourselves did a 10-year deal two years ago. And oftentimes people say, well, why are you talking to companies when they don't really, they just did a lease? Well, there's a portfolio company, right? Number one. So you're asking questions of other leases or other opportunities that may present itself. And two, we literally hit the nail on the head where it was like, hey, we have a problem. We need help. We're not utilizing the space. And this is just two years later. So now we got engaged. We're in the process of being engaged to represent this portfolio company and the disposition of some of their assets across the U.S. Um, and then specifically in a particular market in Southern California where they have two different leases and a campus. And we're like, we're just not utilizing our space. And our burn rate, right, is too oh, yeah. high right now and we need to reduce that so we need to figure out ways to do so so we've come in as a strategic partner or an advisor or really a consultant um and help them understand the way that works and it's not necessarily where you're going to gain the benefit financially from somebody saying oh i'm a transactional real estate person this is much more about an advisory role when you're asking questions and that's the one thing i think it's really important for people who are listening to this to truly understand is and i've said this often god gave us two ears and one mouth not the inverse so it's really important <laughs> Like that's probably the most important advice I think you can give any young sales individual or any young consultant is, is you have two wonderful tools here. Um, right. You don't need to be flabbing your mouth. And so uh, in terms of me uh, not flabbing my mouth here, I'm curious. Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot on the podcast is negotiation. And from what I've heard and some of what I've seen on Twitter, that you're really a, a negotiation expert on a lot of deals. And so 
I'm curious, um, how does one go about adding leverage for a client in the, in the negotiation? Because um, there's a lot of ways and a lot of different uh, conversations that people have around that in the real estate world. And I'm curious about hearing it from someone who has a lot of knowledge going about that process. So, so one thing I've always said, and as a coach, as a, my kids playing hoops growing up or multiple sports, as a leader within my team, what's the one most important component of an athletic event as a team that you need to understand going into uh, an event? What do you think that answer is? What's the one most important thing that you need to know going into a game? I don't know. You got me there. <laughs> How about understanding your opponent? Yeah. Okay. I need to understand what the strengths and the weaknesses are. So the first thing I do is I need to understand what the strengths and weaknesses of all the different landlords where I'm representing my clients. For example, if my client's an existing tenant in a particular asset and occupies anywhere from, let's say, 10 to 20% of that asset, first thing I'm doing is trying to understand what the debt service is on that asset and what it means to the landlord. Because if I understand that's a pressure point for a landlord and understanding that they have the CMBS is coming due or whatever it is in 18 months and our lease is up, excuse me, let's say in three years and our lease is up in 18 months, that leasehold means way more to the landlord than a traditional lease comp. They're like, well, why would I do a deal like that? Well, then I understand and I break down the bases and the taxes and the insurance and everything else that they're doing to underwrite what their potential profit's going to be. And I'm like, you know what? Let's give you a 3 or 4% profit, but that's going to be substantially lower. And then also understanding there's a covenant, a loan covenant, right? And that loan oh, yeah. covenant says, I only can provide you X amount of TIs or whatever that may be. So really understanding those nuances before you get involved in the negotiation allows you to truly understand what the pressure points are for those landlords. And then to be able to have those thought provoking conversations of, hey, this is not just about this particular lease, for example. Um, we had a, a law firm that I represented, which we did that deal about a year and a half ago and unbelievable deal we negotiated um we got over a million dollars in furniture for free that we recognized that a tenant was vacating space and they weren't taking the furniture uh we knew that the landlord had a 50 percent vacancy and said asset we were the first tenant in the door right after covid where people are like desperate to do deals and ultimately did a deal that was substantially lower than what the building was asking. Now, again, for a huge asset that's, you know, a million square feet and you're, you know, 30,000 square feet, you're not that 10 to 15 percent. Right. But it's still a big deal. And then we were able to negotiate terms that were well beyond the market conditions because we recognized the pain point that this particular landlord had relative to their vacancy and their drive to lease up the asset. So I wanted to go into that a little bit more because um, in the post-COVID world, we've seen just drastic amounts of leverage in terms of uh, the way in which folks can utilize um, declining values of office to find great, great workspaces for their clients. And so what are you seeing in California in terms of the post-COVID office world and uh, the ways that you've been able to find leverage for your clients? Hmm, it's a good question. Um, what we're seeing primarily is a flight to quality of particular assets where certain assets are 
coming down or their quoted rate isn't necessarily the whisper rate that these landlords are saying, hey, just bring me a body. Um, we're seeing very much so being a tenant's market. We're seeing, I mean, Tim Cook said, you know, he's looking forward to everyone coming <laughs> back to the office at Apple, obviously. And, you know, I think ultimately, even pre-COVID, there was some discussions about going to a four-day work week just for quality of life. So this whole new hybrid model, I don't really believe it's a true model. I think there's some sustainability of having a model like that. But I do believe, you know, unless you're putting headphones on and you're not talking to anybody and you're writing code and you maybe don't need to be in an office, that's one part. But it's really hard when you have a team of individuals, especially in our industry, who have to listen to conversations, ask questions. You can't do that over Zoom. You can't do that over a conference call. You have to hear things. You have to see documents. You need to understand the process. You need to ask questions. Well, why did you say that? Or why did they say that? And then what was your response? Did you already like similar to what we're talking about today? So I believe there has to be the collaboration, um, the nuance of seeing a, a, a person with more experience. I hate saying juniors and seniors because I think it's a, a negative connotation. And I prefer to call people associates or partners because whether you have 50 years in the business or you have five minutes in the business, they're your partners. So you need to figure out a way to make sure that your teammate can be as successful as possible. And as a coach, if you will, because that's kind of the role that I look at that I, that I have is to make sure that I'm building up my team to be as successful as possible. So you talk to a lot of uh, great occupiers in the business, and I'm curious, um, asking from something that I've heard from a lot of our occupiers, is that their big concern with work from home has been around um, a, a worry that, that they can't train younger staff. So um, in terms of, you know, there are a lot of folks that can work from home that are uh, more in the partner level or executive level who have that breadth of experience. But there's a lot of folks that are coming in in the market that maybe have one or two or less years in the office and might not have that culture and some of the, uh, uh, some of the corporate capital that they've built up over the years in terms of, of knowledge. And so I'm curious if that's a concern that you've heard discussed from some of uh, your occupiers or if, if that's, um, uh, one of the minor um, concerns that might be out there. I, I do think it's a concern. And I've had those conversations. And like we just touched on briefly with the other law firm, you know, having people in the office to learn. I mean, there's an energy uh, that's in the office when you get off a great call and somebody really understands the true value you're providing. And you're like, yes, they get it. They understand the value. Like, let's go. Like from the meeting we had on uh, on last week, I think it was Friday. It's all a blur now. Um, um, <laughs> but it was like just hearing the passion of the prospect saying, we have a problem and can you help us solve it? And being out in the field and coming back to the office and like, yes, we know what we can provide. They get it. Let's go. Let's help solve the problem. To me, that's the exciting part, right? It's not oh, where can I make a dollar or where can I make this transaction? That That's going to come. But the true value and being able to listen to people speak and, and collaborate, and that's where I think a lot of people drop the ball because they don't truly understand 
the process to get to that transaction. And frankly, for me, that that's the win. Like I'm going to make money regardless. But if I can help somebody solve a problem and they get it now, granted, I've solved a lot of problems and client, <laughs> some of them think that they've done things themselves and God bless them, but you're not making decisions without the recommendations or the information to help somebody make that educated decision. Right. So at the end of the day, you know, having people together, just no substitute for having great energy, for sharing ideas. In fact, I have some people coming to my office today and we're going to just do some networking and some brainstorming and connecting the dots. And to me, that's the best part. Like I can still do deals. I can still send emails. I can do LOIs, but let's figure out how we get new opportunities. And to me, um, there's not a lot of people who like to hunt, but I'm one of them. So you talk, you're talking about new opportunities and, and going out there and, and hunting. Uh, one of the things that I would say you're uh, well known for is being a great prospector. And we have a lot of individuals that listen to the podcast that are uh, young brokers. And I'm curious, what are your top prospecting uh, tips for young brokers that are looking out in the market and trying to reach out to that, that new tenant? That's a great question. And we talk about that often. I'm not an advocate of making 200, like I'm on the Twitter <laughs> world tweet and all this stuff. Like we see all the stuff and everyone's like, I wake up and I cold call in my <laughs> sleep and I make 250 calls. It's not really just the numbers. I hate yeah. to like burst people's bubbles because that's like, Hey, dialing for dollars. I am not an advocate of that. What I suggest to people is find your prospect list, whether it's driven by, a company acquires a new firm or a company sells a firm or you think there's an expiration that's coming up or more importantly, some new opportunity presents itself in the market and you're providing value to somebody without an expectation just because you're thinking of them, right? To me, that's the most value that we can provide. And at the end of the day, um, you know, if you're prospecting, make 30 calls, and then follow up those calls with emails and figure out how you're going to provide value because it's much more important to have a directed approach to how you're prospecting. Um, I use this analogy. If you're interested in going out on a date, right, you need to understand who you're interested in dating. Now, if you want to make a million dollars a year and your fees equal X, then you only have so much bandwidth to go after certain prospects to generate said revenue, said income, right? So I say, if you're going to go source a 5,000 foot deal that has a $2 a foot, you know, rental rate in the market, you know, you're going to make $24,000. How much time are you going to spend on a transaction like that? And does that get you to the end game of where you want to be? So when I have people do business plans and ask them, how are you going to make the money that you think you're going to make? I have them delineate out, oh, I'm going to work with Mike on this deal. He's going to give me 30% for working the deal and the value transactions X. And I'm going to work with my other partner and I'm going to work with this guy and I'm going to create my own value that I need some help with. And maybe I get 90% because I need Mike to take it over the finish line. So really understanding who you're prospecting. Like I said, you need to know who you're interested in dating. And then by the way, you may find the perfect prospect and they may be having a bad day. They may have just broken up with their girlfriend or their boyfriend or whomever, right? 
but that doesn't mean you can't still get information. I'm so sorry. So when you do your follow-up call, hey, I'm, I hope you're having a better day. The last time we spoke, it spoke, it sounded like you were going through some, and these are usually the gatekeepers, right? Sounded like you were going through some hard times. You get their name. So when you follow up to them, hi, John, or hi, Suzanne, you know, last time we spoke this, there was an opportunity I wanted to share that I think would be very valuable for Mr. or Mrs. whomever, or Ms. whomever. And, you know, that's how you create relationships. And our business is about relationships. And I would say 10 out of 10 people have relationships. If you're a 10,000 foot user or greater, maybe even smaller because the market's getting tighter because people are, you know, right sizing, if you will, or figuring out how they're not utilizing space, you're going to have a lot of senior people working on smaller deals. And that experience level for somebody who's not used to it, um, you're going to probably lose the opportunity if you're not working with a senior person or somebody or a more experienced person that's going to help you drive that that business opportunity. Look, I think that is terrific advice. Um, I joked on Twitter last last weekend that, you know, uh, I've got a little one on the way and uh, I joked, you know, hey, um, how many calls does he need to be making during tummy time? Because it seems like... Uh, it seems like every broker that you talk to out there is just uh, talks about how many calls they make, but they rarely talk about the quality of the calls. And I think that's absolutely phenomenal advice. Um, well, Gordon, think of it this way. If I called you and I was <laughs> asking of something of you and you don't know me, why are you going to give me anything? <laughs> yes. I mean, 100%. Honestly, people call me and I get cold called like financial companies, you know, insurance. And sometimes I like to keep the person on the phone, not to mess with them, but ask them questions. And most of the time I get hung up on by the person who cold called me. (laughs) And I'm just scratching my leg. Why are you hanging up on me? I asked you a hard question. You should know how to respond, which means you're not being taught the right way to try and inquire about an opportunity. Like, thank you. Hang up. Like almost like they're scared about the response. Like, so even when I get negative responses, I'm not interested. Are you not interested in saving money about finding how your your oper- your business is, is working from an efficiency standpoint? If you could reduce certain your workplace by 20 percent, it could reduce that expense, which is your second largest line item on your balance sheet next to your real estate, next to your salespeople, your salaries. And you could hire two more people because we can reduce your footprint and you can increase your revenue by 15%. Would that be a value still to talk about? Now we're talking about a whole different discussion, right? Yeah. Like, wait a minute, I I don't really want to hang up on you now. So now I've created some value and that could be wrong. Be like, no, I'm good. My cousin's my broker. Wonderful. I'm glad to hear you have some allegiance to somebody. You know, what we'd like to do is to have a second pair of eyes and ears. And I go into an example of, you know, my best friend was my insurance broker and somebody had called me and I've been using this person because this is what happens. Someone's lease is in their desk for 10, 15, five years and they sit there and they're going, um, yeah, so-and-so did my deal. And I'm like, okay, well, when was the last time I'm assuming they provided. So I asked questions they provided you a lease abstract right um what's that well it's like the cliff notes when you were in college and you didn't want to read a book and you were like okay so tell me what the major business points are in fact i had an opportunity this is going back probably 15 maybe longer 20 years where there was a firm in beverly hills and we met with her like we're fine we're fine whatever I said, I'll tell you what, give me the apps, give me the lease. I'll sign an NDA. If I can create some value and find an opportunity for you, 
would you be interested in moving forward? Because they were already engaged with somebody. They said, if you can find something, yeah, I will talk about it. So I found out that there was a, a, a line in their parking provision of their lease that stipulated that the landlord couldn't provide X amount of parking spaces. They had the right to terminate their lease. They had no idea. So my first question was when I provided them the abstract and information was, were you aware of this? And by the way, how is the parking? We don't have enough. Ding, 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 ding. Guess what we did? Terminated their lease for no penalty and relocated them to another asset. So there's definitely value if you have some. Now, their broker probably did a great job negotiating that clause but forgot about it because they weren't using the appropriate CRM. They didn't have the right follow-up on their tickler through the CRM, hoping that, hey, this is my client. No one's going to call on them, or this is my cousin. At the end of the day, you can have family, but at the end of the day, I'm running a business. And if my cousin, Joe Schmo, dropped the ball because there was a way for me to save money, with all due respect, this person's creating a lot more value for me. I'm sorry. And maybe I even throw his cousin a referral because it's family, right? So there's ways to work around that. But if you're not asking the right questions, that to me, and a lot of people don't know what the answer is, right? So there's a number of times I'm getting all these LinkedIn messages. Hey, I saw you on XYZ podcast. I saw you on this. I can't tell you, I started in the industry. It was so helpful to learn. I'm not out here to, I'm sharing information that's pretty much proprietary that I've learned over the years, because what I've also learned is if you can help others be successful, if there's an opportunity down the road and I can be a resource, God bless, I'd be more than happy to work with you. But at the end of the day, if I can make somebody's life better and I have the ability to do so, I always said, if I wasn't ever in that position, I would do it. And that's why I'm doing these. Like that's the reason why we put this whole podcast together was to try to add value. And I'll say it's come back, you know, tenfold in terms of referrals coming in and all sorts of things. And, and we send referrals out uh, to folks as well um, because that's what the world's about, right? The world's about adding value and and uh, uh, capital always flows towards people who add value. So um, in terms of in terms of going through, uh, we're getting to the final four uh, portion of the podcast. And look, I'm disappointed. We have to have you on again. Um, but uh, just as I'm sure you have a busy schedule today, we have we have a showing we have to get to the, later this afternoon, and uh, I don't want to leave my client uh, sitting out in the parking lot. So better to be early than be on time, right? <laughs> yes, yes. So um, in terms of that, going into our final four, one of my favorite questions um, is the first question in the final four, and it's where do you see commercial real estate going ten years from now? And I know uh, that's a little Nostradamus and a little crystal ball, but I think if anyone's situated to see what's coming down the pipeline in the industry. It's you, Michael. Thank you. And I would love to be Nostradamus and have <laughs> a different type of life as well. But the truth <laughs> of the matter is, I think if people aren't embracing AI, there's a big discussion of, oh, chat GPT is going to replace brokers. There's been that discussion of replacing brokers from when I started in the industry almost 20, 26 years ago. Oh, well, people just share the information. Well, each asset is underwritten differently. Brokers aren't going away. However, the way commercial real estate is evaluated, is looked at, is valued, um, people always are going to need brick and mortar. People have talked about how do we convert vacant office buildings to residential where there's a substantial cost of that. So then you have to look at the ROI on the value of it's going to cost you to convert it. 
what you're really going to achieve because people always need places to live. Um, there's been discussion of industrial industrials, kind of like the, the queen at the prom right now, like it's the <laughs> sexiest thing out there. Um, retail used to be that way. Then retail was dead, but retail's back. And now industrial's like, Oh my God, we're getting $24 a foot in certain markets and we've never seen it. And I just was working with a client where, we did our deal like 20 years ago and he was paying like 18 bucks a foot. And now we're looking at, you know, what we were looking at, uh, 60, $70 a foot rents. And he's like, I could have bought the building for that amount. If I'd done, I was like, look, there's that terminology. If so-and-so, whatever, I won't even go into that, but you all know, <laughs> can't look in the rear view mirror. You kind of have to look forward. And by looking forward and seeing where to your question of where do we see commercial real estate, I think it really depends on the different verticals. I think there will be some uh, right sizing the office. I think people will come back to the office. Um, I think it's probably going to take another 12 to 18 months before we really see it. And landlords are kind of holding steadfast to rates. Retail standpoint, people don't want to shop online. Like my wife has 73 things on her Amazon reminder thing. I'm like, She's like, but I actually don't want to try something on, send it back and then keep doing it. Like I like to go to an actual shop and, and shop and try things on and see things. Um, I think from a multifamily standpoint, it's still going to st still continue to be relevant because people need places to live. Um, what did I miss? Retail. We've talked about industrial. There's still the logistics component. People need to shop, send uh, items from point A to point B, and there's got to be a holding place for that. Um, I do think that we will start seeing drones more, like people doing drone videos. Uh, and we talked about AI. As far as where I see ultimately the business going is, I don't know if there's a true final answer, final answer, where we're going to go. But at the end of the day, I think. AI is going to be a big component of it. Yeah, um, I, I think I think AI is definitely going to be the future in a lot of sections of the industry. I think it's going to be supportive, though, rather than I think some people think, oh, it's going to wipe out jobs. No, I don't think so. Uh, but I think it's going to really so, uh, change the way that support staff and brokers interact. Let uh, me give you an uh, example. I'll give you an example of that, right? So one of the clients we worked with or working with, um, they have... Uh, the robotics, right? So that you go into a Chipotle or you go into a White Castle and the fryers where you take the onion rings, they have the robotics that put the onion rings or cook the fries or cook the burgers. Um, Purple's first response on that was like, oh, you're going to put people out of work. Well, no, you're actually going to help enhance people because now they're going to have to teach them how to use technology. So they're going to increase their skill set. And by doing so, you're also going to be being able to pay people more money because, yeah, you're missing the fryer and you have the teenagers on their phone. And by the way, they're looking at their phone and something gets undercooked or overcooked. <laughs> and, and there's HR liability issues that are here as well. Right. So you're saving them from those items as well. So I think that component is definitely going to be prevalent. We're going to see a lot more on the retail standpoint of, you know, manpower and teaching people how to use technology differently. So I think that's a wonderful point. Um, now we're getting into the second question of our uh, final four, and uh, this is a good one. Um, instead of going forward, we're going back. And so, Michael, if you had to give yourself advice, uh, leaving college or leaving high school, uh, that would 
that would give you just a little, you know, one minute spiel on how to, uh, on, on how to live your life maybe better or, or just the same, uh, what, what advice would you give? I would say to, uh, be more patient. Um, I would say to ask more questions. I would say to take a step back and, you know, really evaluate opportunities. You know, there's, everyone's like, oh, you're the bull in the China shop. You like go through and then you ask questions and you're constantly creating opportunities. Maybe that bull is um, not as bullish, if you will. <laughs> Maybe it's more of, let me be a little bit more thought provoking and more, um, and not be so reactive, be proactive. And what I'm thinking about that, that would, and that's really what I'm trying to share with people today. Like, thinking about different ways to be a consultant or advisor versus just transactional, even though that's the way you're compensated in most circumstances. Um, that's probably, if I went back, probably what I would tell myself is think about things before you do them. Um, ask more questions primarily. Yeah. Uh, that's phenomenal advice. I, I know, um, there's that book, um, uh, think, think, was it think quickly, think, think, uh, slowly, uh, I and I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering it, but um, uh, I read it a while ago, and I think that was one of the things that I would personally as well take on. There's the one bit. book you asked me, like I think before we had talked, and you said, "Well, what's the book that?" Uh, shoot, I forgot the name of it, but it basically talked about, and I don't know if you saw um, the new movie, which was, as my kids like to say, mid. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say like really great or not great. It was kind of mid. Um, that understand and that book is really compelling because you really understand the process of building a business, the hurdles, um, finding the right debt and the equity, and being able to build a company, and then have going public and bringing a board in, and all of those nuances involved. So. Um, that was kind of a compelling book. I think understanding the way companies operate and businesses work from a younger perspective, that's something I wish I probably would have tried to understand, but I didn't know um, that those questions to ask. So I think those would be really important. And that was one of the books that I think that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, I, like we're voracious readers around here. Um, I would say, uh, Sometimes you don't really know uh, how important what you're reading is until you've actually started to do it right. too. So exactly. that's um, uh, that's phenomenal advice. So um, getting into our last question, I know you touched on books. If you have another book, I'm happy, but um, I, I'd really love to swing to the last question, which is on individuals. And, and Michael, you know a lot of people in the real estate world. Um, I'm curious who you think uh, – who's influencing the real estate world we should have on next because uh, your network is phenomenal. And, and uh, I think you'd really have an insightful view of who we should bring on next. Um, there's a guy who's got a really great personality and I met him. I'm also the, the chairman of corporate fundraising for a group called CREI, CREI summit. So yeah. Yeah. People are I'm going to try to make, I'm going to try to make it down. Um, if I can, I know, I know we have a baby on the way and a lot of it depends how happy the baby is. Uh, if the baby's, uh, <laughs> the baby's got a good personality, I'll be down there. Right. If not, um, <laughs> I might be staying this home. This is the third year of doing it. And a gentleman who had a pretty interesting story, do you know Shlomo? 
Oh, Shlomo. Yeah, we, we've we've talked on uh, on uh, Twitter a couple times. So, yeah, he seems yeah, like a really so nice he, guy. He would be somebody who's got a very realistic perspective on the capital markets, CMBS, like what's really going on with office buildings, the general market. He, a lot of people, you know, respond to him and say, oh, you're like Mr. Pessimistic. It's like Schlepprock from the Flintstones. But the truth of the matter is getting, you know, clear advice and a different perspective is really important, right? You want to understand both sides of the equation and make an educated decision. And his responses and his, just his journey, I think is really interesting. This is the third year we're doing this event, which is, you know, people from all different um, companies that come together to learn how to use social media better, which again, for your listeners, if you're not doing it and people are like, well, what's the ROI on social media? Like you can't put it an ROI on it yet. Cause it's, you know, certain people like Koi Davidson, right. From Colliers and here, oh, yeah. Koi is like part of the group. And Koi just commented to Ken Ashley, who's kind of his baby now, um, who's at CNW. And he's just like, I just got another opportunity just because I share information on Twitter. And, you know, I, I showed my kids, I was at Santa Anita on Friday and I showed, uh, when I got back, I got this great email on LinkedIn, like, you don't know me. I just started my career in New York in a retail tenant rep. And your advice was like immeasurable to helping me understand because I have no direction or mentorship. So, um, you know, you have lots of people out there in the community who are willing to share information and on Twitter and social media. So I would highly recommend, you know, somebody like a Shlomo, um, Ken Ashley is another great human being. Um, oh, he, Ken is Ken is awesome. I drove him to the airport one time from Chicago. He was oh, the nicest guy. Nicest guy. Genuinely nice, humble, very successful. Um, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, the successful people don't have time to be on Twitter, et cetera. Not true. I think they just choose not to want to share information or they have other things going on without due respect. It's you're totally understandable. Um, but I think personally as a parent as a leader in commercial real estate i think it's incumbent of us to share information to help others continue to become better and um you know doing podcasts like this which i appreciate you having me on to share the information i think is an, an important and invaluable you know opportunity to be able to share that information well michael thank you so much that's wonderful advice and i i hope to see you in person in orlando um i do as well baby pending um so way, I, it gets better i got four I, my youngest are going to be in all four on college next year for the first time so um it gets better all right like i we're very excited around our household it's our first but uh i'm sure it's going to be uh absolute chaos for at least a month so um chaos is good buddy enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> so on that we're getting to the end of the podcast and we have one final question to ask you uh and it might be the most important uh how does someone get in contact with you michael oh very good so i'm um, i'm on linkedin uh let's see twitter's mpa baller 6 instagram's mpa baller 1 linkedin is michael arnold uh, at ai capital um you can text me or call me at 310 694 4550. Uh, you could email me first initial last name. So it's M Arnold, A R N O L D, at naicapital.com. Awesome. Michael, thank you so much. And I hope to see you in Orlando. Me as well. And get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>
Thanks again to Michael. We appreciate his insights. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a five-star rating, or review. Your comments, interactions, and subscriptions truly matter and help us continue to provide quality guests. You can follow us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lanthier with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.